hear those words and you don't hear anything else that's coming out of this guy's mouth. Your vision gets really um, focused and almost like binocular vision. You're not you're not there. The old Jim Tabor was gone, and now there was this new guy that now had to deal with this whole new life. Hey guys, welcome to the Survival Show podcast with Craig and me, David where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster, and show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. Craig, howdy. <laughs> how are you, man? I'm good. I'm, I'm really well. I am uh, looking forward to a trip to where I may actually be able to connect with you. I don't know if you guys know this, but Craig and I are not sitting in the studio together. <laughs> we, we, that can't happen. Craig's in Kentucky most of the time, and I'm most of the time in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. But Let's I'm doing go, really well, we'll and I've got a, yeah, I got a business trip. I'll connect with you. Maybe, maybe we'll get together next week. Yeah, that'd I don't be know. cool. Maybe we maybe we should do a podcast if we can arrange it where we're actually like looking at each other across hey, the table and even video it or something that would be cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, how are you doing today? Are you at home or are you sitting in a a boiler room somewhere recording? Where yeah, are exactly. You? you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> Internet is down. Technology is terrible. So I am thankful that I have a daughter who has a fantastic job and fantastic internet at her work. So I'm hogging her internet right now, and she's ready to go home. So I'm gonna get busy here so we can get this recorded all right man so take us on guys and gals our mission here is to help you progressively increase your survival iq so you can leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning and coming up today this is a very different podcast than anything we've ever done before because we're going to be talking about the real threat to your and mine and a good friend of mine's survival and a topic that a lot of us have had touch our own lives, and that is the idea of cancer as a threat to our health. Uh, A good friend of mine, Mr. Jim Tabor, is going to come on. We're going to interview him and talk to Jim. He is a cancer survivor. He's got some of the most fantastic information that I've heard in a long time about how to help uh, a cancer uh, or a person that has cancer, a family of someone that has a family member with cancer, how we support both and what we can do to help. So we're going to be digging into that today. And we're very thankful that Jim's going to come on and help us with that. Mm-hmm. But before we get into this and everything else we have on tap for you today, I want to thank our sponsor, the Sportsman's Guide. Sportsman's Guide is the hub for everything outdoors from guns to gardening, hunting, camping, survival, preparedness, fishing, boating, and backyard grilling. No joke, Craig. I was on there yesterday, and they have all kinds of stuff for backyard grilling fun. Sportsman's Guide literally has it all. You will be amazed at what Sportsman's Guide has that you can't get anywhere else. And what I mean by that is they actually have their own line of gear called Guide Gear, and they have some really cool stuff, some cool clothing, some a lot of cool gear, unique stuff that Craig and I have been enjoying over there. So as Craig would say, help some brothers out and use the link in the podcast description and you will be transported over to the Sportsman's Guide in an instant. And when you use their link that is in the description, they will know that we sent you and they will want to keep on sponsoring this podcast that helps us to fund production and great content like we're going to have today with Jim, who's gonna help us out a lot he's got some great things to say so use the link in the description go over to sportsman's guide now you'll be glad you did okay craig you ready to get into this podcast with jim i'm ready here we go with jim all right guys and gals today i have a very special guest he's my good friend jim Tabor, and we're taking a a little divergent path from our typical conversation, and we're going to be talking about surviving cancer. Uh, Jim has some special experience with that that he's going to be sharing with us, and uh, nobody better than I can think of to talk to about this subject matter. So, Jim, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Craig, you want to give a little background on Jim? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. So Jim and I met many years ago in the process of 
you know, throwing each other around on a martial arts mat and beating each other up and that kind of good stuff. Uh, bonds are developed when you do such things together. Oh, yeah. And although I have not seen Jim a lot or many times, it's one of those things that, that, uh, and those of you who do that sort of activity in martial arts and fighting and stuff of that nature, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Jim and I have been doing that for a number of years off and on. So it's, it's, uh, awesome to be able to talk to him today. So that's the background on me and Jim. So David, what's, what's up next? Okay, Jim, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your pre-diagnosis with cancer and, you know, what sort of things kind of were going on at at that time of your life? Maybe give us a little bit of your backstory up to that Yeah, so um, as Craig said, uh, I've been doing Aikido and martial arts for the past, gosh, over 25 years and Zen training over 25 years. And um, Craig actually uh, ran a survival camp. Uh, years and years ago that uh, I attended when I was a, a young guy and it was April and it we woke up to snow the next day which was really cool actually um, so I've always been interested mm-hmm. in, in martial arts and, and especially outdoor stuffs and and uh, before my diagnosis um, I was just living a regular life married two kids uh, had a job um, I had been a full-time musician for a while and when I uh, had my second daughter, decided that it was time to settle down. I got a regular nine to five uh, in social work. And I've been in social work in and out for many, many years. And, uh, but I was over the, in my early thirties, I started to get plagued with um, arthritis in my hips. And um, over the years, it just got worse and worse until I saw a video of myself walking and I was actually limping and didn't realize I was limping. And I was probably 36, 37 Mm. years old. And I said, wow, this is really bad. So then um, I, I found a guy that does a, an operation called a hip resurfacing, um, one of only two or three guys in Chicago. And this guy happened to be the one that uh, my insurance accepted. So I went with him, and he happens to be the top guy in Chicago, um, is Dr. Eugene Lopez. And he did the first operation in uh, March of 2013. And uh, it was amazing. It's like I got my life back. And then he did the other side, um, the other hip in December of 2013. And when they give you or when they when they do surgery, major surgery like that, they'll give you blood thinners to help to keep clots from forming. And so after the second surgery, I was at home and I was going through rehab at home, PT and things and had a nurse coming over to help with with some of that. Um, with the dressing and everything, because they they basically slice your your hips open about a twelve inch slice down the side of your hip, I guess um, right where your hip bone is. And uh, so she would help with that. And then uh, as I was um, going through that process, um, I started to pass blood in my stool. And uh, I told the nurse about it, and she said, "Well, you're on blood thinners, but that shouldn't be happening." So she said, "You should go to your doctor." So I went to my doctor, and he did a couple of tests, and then he said, "You should have a colonoscopy." So I had a colonoscopy, and um, woke up from the colonoscopy thinking they were going to find who knows a, a, a polyp, maybe that was bleeding from the the blood thinners. And he woke. I was waking up out of this wonderful twilight that they put you in for a colonoscopy. And he said, oh, I've been waiting for you to wake up because uh, you have uh, cancer and you need to go talk to an oncologist right away. And it was like, it was, it was surreal. Yeah. So that's kind of, and a lot of cancer patients will tell you, or, or cancer survivors will tell you that there's your life before your diagnosis. And then there's your life after diagnosis. And it's at that moment. It's like that you see in the movies, like you hear those words and you don't hear anything else that's coming out of this guy's mouth. Your your vision gets really um, focused and almost like binocular vision. You're not you're not there. And it's like the old Jim Tabor was gone. And now there was this new guy that now had to deal with this whole new life. Um, so it's pretty surreal. So other than that initial, you saw blood in your stool, you, you had no indication whatsoever. You, you, I mean, hindsight didn't tell you anything either, right? Or No, no. Yeah. Um, some, uh, and my, my diagnosis was stage three rectal cancer. And um, many um, rectal cancer or colon cancer patients will experience um, 
abdominal pain, they'll experience um, difficulty um, going to the bathroom or, or passing a bowel movement. And I had none of those. I wasn't weak. I wasn't having pains. I had no indication at all that I had cancer. And uh, so it was a huge surprise. How old were you at this time, Jim? I was 38. So this was 38. Fe- no, no, 37. I was, it was February of 2014 when I was diagnosed. Wow. That's uh, the way he introduced you to that was kind of quick and to the <laughs> point. That's that was hardcore. Yeah, he wasn't messing around. He said, uh, <laughs> yeah. "You got to go get this taken care of right away." Um, it was yeah, it was a shock. So, Jim, can you explain? Because I'm I'm not familiar with the different stages of cancer. When you say stage three, can you can you help us all understand what that actually means? Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny that. Um, a lot of cancer patients will say um, having cancer is like a the club that you belong to and become an expert in that nobody wants to be a, a member of. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you quickly <laughs> become true. an expert um, when you have any kind of um, disease like that. Um, so, and again, I'm not a nurse or a medical uh, professional, but the, the there's four, really five stages of cancer. The stage zero, which is basically a mass of cells that are precancerous. Uh, many times when people have a colonoscopy, they'll have a polyp that could be a precancerous polyp that a surgeon will remove and they'll, they'll do a biopsy of it. Um, stage one is where the tumor is located in a very centralized place, a very small place in your body. Um, stage two and three kind of overlap, and that's where a, a tumor will start to invade tissue around the original site and also start to invade lymph nodes that are in that area. And then stage four uh, is the most serious stage, and that's where the tumor or the, the cancer, for the most part, has spread to, to other organs in the body and other places in the body, and that's called a metastasis, or uh, METS for short. So if you hear somebody saying, well, I have METS to the liver, I have METS to the lung, or I have metastasis all over my body, that means that the tumor originated in one place and then spread throughout the body. And so the lymph nodes are the vehicle to pass that throughout the body? Yeah, you know, it depends on the kind of cancer. Um, If it's a blood cancer, obviously the blood is going to be the vehicle, Mm. but most, and again, somebody might be listening to this and go, he's wrong, which could very well could be, but from what I understand... Um, the lymph mm-hmm. nodes are kind of the highway that um, cancer cells will travel to get to other parts of your body. And so as as the diagnosis was given to you, I mean, it was when you were first given this diagnosis, was it something that initially that you felt like uh, when you received this news, what, what kind of things happened to you at that moment? What kind of things happened to you in the days and weeks following? And specifically for our audience here, what kind of things did you do to overcome those? Yeah, and that's I think it's really important to talk about um, when you're faced with some kind of an illness or a, a very serious life um, event is like, what's the mental preparation? Um, so there's the physical side of things. There's all a battery of tests that you go through when you're first diagnosed. Um, There's a ton of doctor's appointments you go to. There's generally three different um, doctors that, well, that I saw. One was the oncologist who's kind of the the captain of the ship as far as your treatment plan goes. He's the one that decides what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And then there's, I had a radiation oncologist because I received radiation treatments. And they're the ones that really um, create the plan for the radiation treatment. And then there's the surgeon, which I needed surgeries as well. Uh, to remove the the cancer. And the surgeon works with the radiation oncologist and also the oncologist to to come up with a plan and and treat the patient. Hmm. So there's just a ton of tests, depending, again, depending on the kind of cancer you have, um, there will be different tests involved. Um, Then there's all the doctor's appointments. But really, the the mental part of it for me was really interesting. Um, Because of training in martial arts and because of training um, in Zen practice, the... Greg, I'm sure, or Craig, sorry, I'm sure that you can relate that um, there's that warrior aspect that we train in, in that um, you, when you face a challenge, you go head on and you, you try to cut through it and you try to defeat it regardless of the cost. And that was kind of my mindset from the start is that, well, now I finally have a real adversary to, um, to face with all this training I've done over all these years. Now it's time to 
um, put this into practice. And so um, thus began my uh, mental preparation for all this stuff. And I, I looked at um, the life that I still wanted to live and then the family that I had. And I said, I'll be damned if anything's going to take me away from, from any of this. So, um, so I started to prepare mentally. And, and part of that was um, I had already had a, a meditation reg- regimen that I followed every day. So I kept that. Um, the, the days and weeks before my first surgery, um, I worked out harder than I ever had because I knew that after the surgery, I was going to have to have chemotherapy and I was going to have to have radiation therapy. And that was just going to beat me down really bad. So I wanted to be as strong physically as possible before any of that happened. So let me jump in there real quick, Jim. So working out uh, with cancer, that's not a problem. I mean, it doesn't help accelerate anything. I mean, that's that's something that's advisable. I mean, I know I'm not saying that everybody listening should follow the same protocol you did, but for you, that wasn't a problem, right? Yeah, I mean, considering that I didn't even know I had cancer and that I didn't, I couldn't tell mm-hmm. that I had cancer, I didn't feel sick. Um, I talked to my doctors about that and they said, absolutely exercise. And they encouraged it during treatment as well. They said, you know, you have to be careful about how much you Mm. exert yourself, but they said, we don't want you laying on the couch for the next nine months while you have treatment. If you, if you're an active person, you do what you can. Um, and uh, we can, as we go through the podcast, we can talk more about what I did during the treatment as well. Um, but mentally, I think was the most important part of all this was to make up my mind that I was going to go through anything that I had to go through um, to heal, meaning physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever it took. I didn't care. Um, I kind of felt like I was there's a, a common um, term in Zen training that you throw your body away. You throw it into whatever you're doing. And that's the the approach I took with um, with the, the treatment was I was just going to. Th- throw my body completely into it, let them do whatever they had to do to me to fix me and uh, come out the other side, hopefully still alive. Mm. Can I just step in here a little bit? And and who did you, when you initially found out, Jim, who did you share this with and how did that go? How did people respond? Yeah, that's a really interesting um, situation when you start telling people you have cancer because you're. I was young and healthy, um, so my my wife at the time um, was with me during the colonoscopy. When you have anything, any kind of procedure like that, you have to have someone to drive you and pick you up. So she was there when the doctor first told me. So she was floored, obviously, and shocked. And so when we were driving back to my house um, after that appointment we started to make the phone calls. We started calling our parents um, and telling them what, what, what was found from the, uh, the test. And um, then we had to go home and tell our kids. And I'll tell you, that was the hardest part. Probably uh, there's, I'd have to say that was the hardest part of all of this was telling my kids that I had cancer. Um, my youngest was four at the time, so I don't think she really understood what that meant. Um, but my oldest, mm-hmm. um, she was 11 and she understood what cancer was and has all the same fears and reactions that anybody else would. Um, so that, that was extremely difficult for me. Um, and then going to tell my friends and my family and after a while, um, I just became numb to it because I had repeated the story over and over. But for them, it's they're hearing it for the first time, and it's just the utter shock that um, people have on their face when you tell them. So I, I hated telling them, but at the same time, I knew that along with the, the physical preparation and the mental preparation I was taking, I knew I was going to need a huge support system and the support of everyone I knew to get through this. Wow. So the, the, was there any surprises in that? I mean, good or bad that came about from telling people? I mean, and anything come up that you're like, wow, I can't believe that. Oh yeah. I mean, um, people were so supportive. Um, I, I worked at a, a, a small agency, uh, that everybody knew everybody and they were, everybody was so supportive of me before, during, and after, um, all of this stuff. Um, and uh, just the, the love and support I got from the people in my life is just, was just simply humbling. I mean, I really, I only cried once when, when I was going through all of this for myself. Um, not even the, the woe was me, but just like, 
just really frustrated with, with the process. But I can't tell you the number of times I cried because of the, the words or the actions from someone that I loved or someone that cared about me. Um, it was just so humbling. And, and it was really, really a beautiful experience to f- feel all that around me. It was really great. So, Jim, did you have any history of cancer in your family at all? So the only history of cancer in my family was my aunt was diagnosed with breast cancer. And actually after my, so she was diagnosed years and years prior to that, probably when she's 15, 20 years ago. Um, And then actually after um, my diagnosis, she was diagnosed again with breast cancer and then beat it again. So she's Hmm. a a bit of an inspiration to me. Um, But no, that's it. I mean, on my side of the family, uh, both my mom and my dad's side of the family, no cancer. So, so are there was, any indicators was, what may have caused it to start? No, and I, I will tell you that that's every cancer patient's question is hmm. not necessarily why me, but how? What did I do or what happened? Right. What did I did I eat the wrong food? And it was funny because I was a vegetarian at the time for about four or five years before I was diagnosed. So I was eating really clean, really healthy, um, exercising quite a bit, um, working out. Uh, martial arts, all these things that you're supposed to do, um, that didn't smoke, um, not a binge drinker. Uh, I enjoy beer, but at the same time I was, I didn't drink a lot. So all of the, I didn't have any risk factors. So that's always the question. I did ask my oncologist at one point, I said, how does this happen? How, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. Um, not again, not as a pity question, but more of trying to, I like to understand Mm -hmm. how things work and, Sure. Yeah. Analytical. And uh, he said, sometimes we just don't know. He said, that's the best answer I can give you. Mm. And I said, well, I really, you know, I appreciate that because he's not trying to make up something. He was really honest with me. Mm-hmm. So Jim, can you tell me, did they have any initial prognosis? I mean, you were a stage three. Did they have, I mean, did they give you uh, a lot of hope? Yeah, they know, did. Kind of- um, they said that with my cancer and the way where it was and the way that it was, it was very curable. Um, they said the first step was going to be surgery um, to remove the cancer, um, to remove a section of my rectum, and then to remove about a third of my colon. Um, and that was to prevent any po- other possible tumors that might have been growing that they did, that they couldn't see, anything that was on the cellular level. Um, and then they did, um, I had, had 12 rounds of chemotherapy and about a month's worth of radiation meaning that you go in uh, five days a week for about a month um, to get radiation treatment. Um, and they said with that, they said, you should be cured. You should be in good shape. And, um, and I was. And it's been five years since, uh, over five years since my diagnosis. So That's awesome, Jim. Yeah, thanks. Once you reach that five-year mark, you're in pretty good shape in terms of um, avoiding any kind of a relapse or reoccurrence. So uh, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but let's go ahead and dig into this since you're talking about it. Can you tell us and explain to us, and one thing that we want to get across is not just how you dealt with it, but for those that were supporting you, how they dealt with it, because there's, you know, we all know somebody that's dealing with this in their family. Um, Yeah. And that your treatment process is what I want to get at is tell us about radiation and chemotherapy and what that process is like and how we can help people that are going through that, how we can sure. help, you know, if, I, if I've got a friend that's got a family member that's sick with this, how I can help him or her, or what, what can we do? Yeah, that's, that's all great stuff, and, and I'm really happy that we're, we're delving into that stuff because it's really important. Because it's, um, you know, as someone who went through it and remembering uh, the beginning stages of all this, it's like the, it was all such news to me, and I, I was so unfamiliar with it. And even people that... Um, that I speak with now, um, I'm on a couple support groups on Facebook for uh, colon cancer and rectal cancer, and we get new people diagnosed every day that come in and say, what can I expect from this or that? So it's a good refresher for me, and it's it's really nice to help other, hmm. other folks that are diagnosed. Um, but to your question, um, so there's there's several different kinds of chemotherapy to treat colon cancer specifically. And then there's other chemotherapies to treat other kinds of cancers. 
They just, I don't understand the science of it. I didn't really delve into too much of that. Um, I was much more interested in just healing. So I was, I didn't care too much about how it worked as long as it worked. But um, I can mm-hmm. speak specifically to the, the, um, the chemotherapy I was on and it was actually a pill form. So some chemotherapies can be administered with a pill and some of them cannot. Um, so most people are familiar with what's called infusion chemotherapy, where people have a port put into their chest, which allows the chemotherapy to be put directly into a main artery. Um, I believe it's an artery into their chest rather than going into the, uh, like a vein in their arm because the chemotherapy will burn the veins. It's pretty nasty stuff. Hmm. So this port goes into this chest and then you can uh, basically hook somebody up to a chemotherapy like an IV bag. And that's generally what people see, like um, Breaking Bad. A lot of people have seen that show that he was getting infusion therapy um, in in that show. Um, So that's what most people think. I was lucky enough that my oncologist gave me a choice. He said, do you want to do infusion or do you want to do a pill? And I said, well, the pills are a lot less invasive. So let's try that first. And it all depends on how your body handles the side effects of that medication. Some people don't do well with the pill. Um, some people don't do as well with the infusion. And when you say don't do well, what do you mean? What, what happens to them from, from your experiences and what, you know? Sure. So general, very general side effects of chemotherapy are hair loss, um, uh, fatigue, um, upset stomach, um, sores in your mouth and throat because the chemotherapy is targeting, uh, fast growing cells. So cells that grow fast, the cells that we slough off, like the cells inside your mouth, cells in your esophagus, um, in your stomach, in your intestinal tract, and then the cells that are on the, the palms of your hands and the bottom of your feet. Those are all cells and, and hair follicles. Those are all cells that, that um, produce very quickly, just like cancer cells. So that's why chemotherapy, that's why people lose their hair, that's why they get these sores. Um, my specific chemotherapy wasn't prone to hair loss, so I didn't lose my hair. So people saw me and they thought, oh, he's fine because he's oh, he's got all his hair. Wow. He's doing great. But I was pretty sick. I had pretty upset stomach most of the time. Um, and then uh, r- pretty good fatigue. Um, I did. Um, at one point, I, lo- I lost my taste or my sense of taste, which is really kind of a funny story. Mm. I was eating breakfast one morning and... I was eating my cereal and it didn't taste like anything. And I thought maybe the milk went bad or something. And I checked the milk. It was fine. I took another bite and I thought, oh, I lost my sense of taste. And that lasted for about three or four months. And then it came back. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So there's little well, things. It sounds like it's something that provided you. I mean, I don't know. And and I'm asking. But yeah. the way you're saying that, it sounded like it was something that provided a little bit of of humor, even though it was a bad thing, right? Or am I yeah. wrong there? Yeah. I mean, it was a fairly... Fairly harmless, you know. I mean, I, I asked right. my oncologist about it because I was at first worried that I wouldn't ever get it back, and he said, "No, that sometimes happens." Um, he said that eventually it'll come back. It's just while you're on the chemotherapy, it'll it uh, you'll you'll it'll be gone. And I said, "Okay," um, but um, one of the major side effects that I was really worried about because I'm also a musician um, that comes with the ther- chemotherapy I was on were sores and really dry um, uh, bottoms of your feet and palms of your hand. In fact, where if you look at your the palms of your hands and where the where the skin kind of has little cracks or the the bottom the back of your knuckles have little cracks in them, those would actually crack open and bleed. Um, so mm. yeah, they got and I was going through chemotherapy during the summer in Chicago where it's hot and humid. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I was constantly lathering my hands up with with lotion um and they just uh, it just got bad at, at some point and at some point and you were still drumming at this point I, too jim or I, no or did you have no to i wasn't um so the band that i played with um at that point i wasn't playing drums anymore just because i didn't have the physical um energy to do that but i i also play guitar so i was playing guitar with that band over the summer which actually was a huge boost hmm, okay. for me just to be able to get on stage and continue to make music. Um, uh, it, it was it was great to be able to do that. But at some point, I couldn't even carry my gear. I had to have the guys in the band carry my gear, set it up, and then I would get on stage and play. And then at the end of the night, hopefully stay awake to get home. 
but uh i didn't have the the physical right. um endurance to be able to play drums much less set them up carry them around um so that's kind of the chemotherapy side of things um and again depending on the chemotherapy someone's on um they'll have different kinds of side effects but that's what i experienced um the radiation on the other hand is is brutal um if you know anybody that's getting radiation uh it's really bad it uh it completely wipes you out i mean i was sleeping 12 14 hours at a time and i would wake up and i felt like i pulled an all-nighter and it was like i can't believe how tired i am never been that exhausted in my life um so that my radiation lasted about five weeks um it was five days a week it's almost like getting an x-ray if you've ever gotten an x-ray you don't feel anything when you get an x-ray it just you sit on the table um and they they hit you with a radiation for about two or three minutes and then you go on your way so i would do it during my lunch hour when i was working um but over time it's a cumulative um it builds up in your body and so my cancer was rectal cancer it was in my rectum so that's what they're blasting so it's a certain point i couldn't sit down anymore it hurt so bad it was like Think of a real bad sunburn on your mm. butt, basically. Um, and so uh, when I was working, I was yeah. eventually, I just stood up at my desk instead of sitting down because I couldn't sit down. Um, and that was very, very uncomfortable, very painful. Um, but thankfully, it was only about five weeks of that. And then the pain lasted another month, maybe, and then started to subside a little bit. Um, so that's kind of how the treatment went as far as the chemotherapy and the radiation. Um, the surgery was probably my first surgery was probably the toughest part of the whole treatment. Um, that's where they, they open you up and they had to cut out parts of my intestine, large intestine and rectum, and then put me back together. Um, I had a colostomy bag for about nine months while the, the gut healed. Um, and I had a really, really bad um, experience after the surgery in that when you go under anesthesia um, and you start cutting up and messing up the bowels, they oftentimes will shut down. And when they shut down, they don't move. There's no peristalsis. But your stomach continues to create bile and stomach acid, so it has to go somewhere. So it starts to fill that up. And eventually... It comes out, and so eventually it was vomiting um, this bile and this stomach acid, and it was just horrible. Um, and so what they do is they uh, they stick. So was that happening toward the ends of that five weeks, Jim, or was that all the way through? That was the initial surgery. So I was in the hospital for about twenty days. So that was the first step of my treatment was this surgery. Um, mm. And so they um, after about two or three days. They started to realize, well, your your bowels aren't moving. We have to we have to make sure that you can't leave until you're able to pass something and make sure that your bowels are working again. And that's when all this started to happen. And that's called an ileus when your bowels stop working and they just kind of sit there and say, "No, we're not gonna we're not gonna move anything along." That's called an ileus, mm-hmm. and um, that lasted about twelve days, um, and oh, was wow. the most painful thing I've ever endured. I mean, like it. It, it hurt for anybody to touch me, just my skin. I mean, I can't even explain. I, I, I was like, wow, this is going to be a little rougher than I thought it was going to be. Um, but eventually, yeah. uh, one morning I woke up and the, the my um, colostomy bag had filled up with air. And that means that things were starting to move. <laughs> um, and then it was all uphill from there. But that really knocked me down. I lost about 25 pounds in those 20 days. Um, I only ate a few times. Um, so it was, it was, that was the roughest part of it for me. And then after that, everything seemed like I could take anything after that. So can we specifically look at, we've got somebody that is family or friend that's going through that. What can we do to help somebody in that yes, situation? Yeah, that was the original point of your question. Um, so no, no, this is great, man. I love hearing what you're saying. It's helping me a lot. Yeah, I mean, and and again, everybody everybody that goes through cancer has a different experience. Um, some people don't like to call it a fight. Um, I, on the other hand, felt like for me, the 
the the thing that helped me most mentally and physically was to imagine going to war, preparing for war, preparing for battle, um, and defeating this no matter what I had to do. And so, um, I, when I was first diagnosed, everybody that I talked to, I asked, there's two things I'm asking from you. I'm asking for you not to feel sorry for me. I don't want any pity. And the other thing we're going to do is we're going to fight this with humor. And so I asked for people <laughs> to um, make jokes. I mean, I called it ass cancer because that's what it is. And I thought, what better cancer can you have to make fun of than ass cancer? So I had a lot of jokes and I still get them to this day by my very good friends. <laughs> so right. and, uh, and I'm still alive to, to hear the jokes. So I'm grateful for that. Um, Certainly. But I think that when you have a loved one that's diagnosed with cancer, I think the most important thing for people to remember is that they are still the person they were the day before they were diagnosed. Um, I think many times when we see somebody with cancer or we see somebody that's experiencing a traumatic event, we see that person as that event rather than as the human being that they are. And I constantly, um, I shouldn't say constantly, I reminded people of that. And people really respected that. And that really made me feel better that people at work, um, you know, what I would tell them, they would cry. And then I said, and you know what, we're going to move on and we're going to get through this. And um, I just want you to treat me as Jim. And that's what people did. And I was so, so grateful for that because it wasn't, I wasn't Jim, the guy with cancer anymore. I was just Jim. And I think it's important to, talk to your loved one or talk to your friend that's diagnosed and ask them um, how they want, how they want you to interact with them. Some people don't like to talk about it. Some people are not very public about it. I was very public about my cancer and my diagnosis and my treatment because I wanted to educate people. I felt like this was an opportunity for me to, to educate people as I was being educated at the same time about what it's like to have cancer and what it's like to go through it. Um, so, uh, like I said, I think it's important to talk to people about how they want to, um, to address it and to talk about it. And some people do not want to address it. And I welcome people to ask any questions they had about it. Um, and it's really helped. I think people that I know, uh, understand cancer more and be more prepared for the event that they or their loved one has diagnosed. Jim, this is really interesting because I didn't talk to you about this before the show, but in 1986, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And in 1996, it was a 10-year fight for her. And and things were a bit different back then in many ways, but she died in uh, February of 1996. And the interesting thing about her was she she took the path that, that the other path, she chose not to tell anybody except a very close circle of people. And mm-hmm. in fact, when she just died in 1996, a lot of people never knew that she had cancer. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, she, she was of the mindset. She was a very uh, well-regarded and a, a very strong person. And her mindset was, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. Yeah. So, I, I know exactly yeah. how she feels or felt, uh, in that I didn't want pity. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. I think a lot of cancer patients feel the same way. Mm -hmm. She wanted people just to treat her as her name was Mary as Mary, not as, you know, Mary has cancer. So it's, it's interesting how different people deal with it. And, uh, you know, it sounds like actually for me, this has actually been helpful too. One thing that I wanted to add on to that, what, and you kind of already mentioned it, but as far as what people maybe shouldn't say, I I think you did a really, I guess what I'm getting at is I think you did a really good job being proactive with, with people to, you know, respect whether how they wanted to talk about it. You opened up the opportunity for people to engage you about it. You had humor in there and you were proactive to approach people so they wouldn't take that Uh, feeling sorry for you approach. Is there anything that you would encourage people uh, not to do or not to say? Yeah, I think that it's important for people that 
um, or the thing, the things that people shouldn't say or do, I think are things like telling someone it's going to be okay. Cause you don't know that. Um, anybody that I've, it's really interesting. I had a really good friend that was diagnosed with the same cancer I had about three months before I was, I had a friend who was diagnosed about three months after I was with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then, um, a woman I met through another contact that was diagnosed with the same cancer I was maybe a year after I was, um, she, she got in touch with me just to ask me a bunch of questions and find out about, um, the process and all those things. And with all those people, I never, never said, and from people I've met since that have been diagnosed, I will never say things are going to be okay. Cause you don't know that they are going to be. I think it's really important to be honest and upfront with people. Um, I think it's important to tell your loved one or your friend that's been diagnosed that you will be there for them, um, that you love them, um, that you, one thing you can do is bring dinner over for them. <laughs> Food is a really hmm. interesting medium for us, for, for human beings, in that um, it, it opens conversation. And it's really nice when people would bring food over for me. Uh, it, it was like, oh, God, it's one less thing I have to do. Because just doing simple things can be very difficult when someone's going through treatment. Um, if you're going to make food for somebody, ask them what they can and can't eat. Because certain things are going to make them sick. Um, or there's going to be certain things they just can't eat um, based on the cancer. Um, so also in line with that, I think it's important um, for people to, and again, it's really specific to the person, but I didn't like when people pretended like I didn't have cancer. I appreciated when they acknowledged it and we moved on. Um, when they would ask things like, how are you feeling? Um, a, a really good question to ask a cancer patient is, how are you feeling today? Because it can change mm. from day to day. Um, if you just say, how are you feeling? It's a really nice out for a cancer patient to say, um, I feel good or I feel bad. But if you ask, how are you feeling today? They'll tell you, yeah, you know, I don't feel so good today. But yesterday was a good day. Or today's a lot better than it was yesterday. And that's awesome. That's awesome advice. So you kind of dug into this a little bit, but what kind of obstacles did you run into with your treatment what kind of or with family with friends then and how else did you overcome those things as the person there that was dealing with the cancer or mm. what can we tell family members to help and I, and I guess this says layers is you know let's say again I've got uh, a, f a, f a friend who has a family member with cancer how do I help that friend how does that friend help to their family member or whatever it might be? Um, just looking for ways that we can help people overcome those obstacles. Sure. So there's um, certainly things you can do um, that are uh, like would be physical things. Like I talked about bringing over food. Um, there was a certain point where I had a house at the time when I was diagnosed and I had a yard that I really, I love doing yard work. I love being outside and I could no longer physically cut my grass. And uh, so I had to ask, I have, a, I have five brothers, so they came over to help from time to time. Um, I had friends come over to help from time to time. Um, uh, if you're, if you have kids or the person has kids, like I have two kids. And I remember one day, it was a beautiful day outside and I was sitting in my bed and I was really sick. And all I wanted to do was go outside and play with my kids and, and take a bike ride with my kids and I couldn't do it. And I was really frustrated. And so one of my brothers came over and did that for them, did, you know, played with them and hung out with them for the day. So little things like that, that you really don't think of, um, meant a lot to me. And, um, and again, supporting, uh, the spouse of the person that's been diagnosed, um, ways that you can do that. Maybe you can go grocery shopping for them, or you can do something that just relieves them physically and emotionally. That's one less task that they have to do. Or maybe if the person has kids, take, taking the kids out for a day, um, for a hike or something just to give, um, that, that spouse and that person diagnosed a little bit of time alone together. Um, and, and I think an important thing to do, um, for people that are diagnosed is not to ask the question, what can I do? It's rather to tell them I can do this for you. Is that okay? Because if you say, 
if you ask the question, what can I do? That person may not have the wherewithal at the moment, or they may not have the energy to be able to answer that question. Um, but if you tell them, Hey, would you mind if I uh, did cut your grass or if I uh, made you dinner tonight? Um, or if I just hung out with you tonight, if I, you know, we watched a movie or something like that, um, if they're not able to get out and about, or if they do like getting out in nature, Hey, do you mind if I take you for a ride? Um, and we go through wherever, um, go, go sit and watch the trees for a while just to get outside. Um, that's really important. So Jim, it sounds like you had some really hard days through the whole process and, you know, the, the warrior, there's times with all of us where our strength and persistence and training to push through just don't cut it. And we almost feel like there's not much hope. Do you have any suggestions for people in general and people that are struggling, struggling maybe with any health issue as far as how to retain hope and maybe how you did that in your case? Yeah, that's a that's a really great point because I think no matter how long you train for, or how much you train, um, you, at a certain point you just go, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, whether it's a survival situation, thankfully I've never been in a survival situation where I'm out in the middle of the woods and if if I don't do the right things, I'm not making it home. Um, but I think that the the, the mindset is very similar. Um, and I one thing that helped me was seeking motivation outside of myself. And I've heard people say that the only one that motivates you is you. But I found that um, there were there's some really great motivational um, videos on YouTube that I found when I was in the hospital. I was so sick. And there's one. Um, am I able to mention one if you guys don't mind? Would that be OK? Or yeah, is please. That, go ahead. Is that, OK. There's my favorite one that I've watched uh, just about every day that I went through my treatment and diagnosis. So like almost every day for 10 months. Um, and then I still watch it from time to time when I need a little kick in the pants. Um, it's called why we fail. And it is a great, um, motivating video that I encourage you guys to watch. And anybody out there that maybe needs some motivation or maybe feels like they can't, they can't go on or they can't go to that next step. This one just like drove me like mad. Let's really ignited the fire in my belly to keep going. Um, some of the other things that I did, um, I, like I mentioned, meditation was really an amazing, um, experience. Uh, I've been, a, um, a Zen meditator, uh, practitioner for the past 25 years. And I'm always waiting for this experience of enlightenment, but it hasn't come yet. Um, but one thing that I did experience during my treatment was, um, peace through all of this, um, while I was sitting on the cushion meditating, um, I, I didn't, while I was meditating, I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel tired. Um, I, I was able to breathe and just in, enjoy whatever that moment was bringing, whether it was rain, it was raining that day or whether it was sunshine coming through the window. Um, it was really a surreal experience to go, Oh, wow. This is, it's, there's a little relief here. Um, and then as soon as I ring the bell and get up from the cushion, it all came rushing back. <laughs> but, uh, um, there was that, um, and then again, it was just, um, finding people, uh, the experiences of other survivors, um, other people that have gone through it that know exactly what you're going through. That's why those Facebook pages were so important to me. And I continue to, to be a part of them. Because um, now I'm the hope for somebody else. And I don't say mm -hmm. that to be um, curt or, or say it to be um, uh, like I'm better than anybody else. But I think when you go through an, ex an experience like that and you come out the other side and you're healthy and you can show people like, look, look, I'm still here. I'm still healthy and I'm enjoying life. That gives them drive. Like, if that guy can do that, why can't I do that? And one of the quotes that stuck with me um, through this uh, YouTube video that I was talking about is, uh, there's two of them. One is, and I believe it was Henry Ford that said it was, he who thinks he can and he who thinks he can't are both right. Um, and there's another one that goes, or I'm, I'm forgetting it now. Um, oh, 
it's really a great quote. And it's um, you sometimes you have to sacrifice who you are for what you want to be. And when I felt like I, I, I didn't want to take another pill, I didn't want to go through another radiation treatment. Um, I, uh, just so, so weak. I thought about those two quotes and I thought my body says it doesn't want to do this anymore, but I found that the mind can keep driving your body beyond what your body says it can do. So it's really that, that mindset that you're just going to keep going until, until you die. Um, that was really my mindset. And, those kinds of things really motivated me to keep going, even when I was, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to move anymore. And then, uh, I thought, well, well, the other part of it too, probably the biggest motivator was my kids. Um, just knowing that they were watching me, knowing that they were worried, knowing that, um, that if I didn't keep going, I just gave up, maybe I wouldn't be there for them in the future. And, uh, like I said, in the beginning of the podcast, I was not going to let that happen. You, you started getting into this a little bit. Um, but just because me and your friends and I've seen some of the posts you've made on social media, you've talked about this idea of survivor's guilt Mm. that, you know, there's some of these people that, that maybe you went through treatment with, or you knew that got diagnosed similar to you and they did not make it through. I mean, yeah. what, what is survivor's guilt like? What can we do to help people with, with that? Yeah, so survivor's guilt, um, it's, not, it's not restricted to cancer. It's, it's any sure. event that is traumatic that one survives and another person doesn't. So it could be a car wreck. It could be a survival situation where you're stuck in the woods and you make it out, but your partner doesn't. I mean, it could be any kind of situation like that. Um, and for me particularly, it's really it was the one thing that I did not anticipate that bothered me more than anything that I could have imagined was after I was done with my treatment and I had my last surgery and I was out of the woods and I was done. And all I had to do is keep going to my doctor's visits and keep getting my tests done and make sure that this thing didn't come back. Um, as time went on, I learned more and more people that had been diagnosed with cancer, um, and especially kids that that's really, really tough to hear. So the question for me started to become why me in the sense, rather than why me, why did I get diagnosed with cancer? Why did I get cancer? Rather, why me? Why did I survive and this person didn't, especially this kid? Why did this kid die? And I'm still here. What's the, where's the, the, the fairness in that, or where's the, Where's the victory in that? And you start to feel, um, it's part of you starts to feel guilty for surviving because you want everyone to beat it. You want everyone to survive, especially a, a kid, a kid that hasn't barely, um, barely lived, uh, you know, infants or two or three year olds or seven or eight year olds, um, fighting for their lives, fighting harder than most of the adults that I know and going through things that we can't imagine as a kid and just wondering, why did I make it through and this kid didn't? Um, or this this person. Um, there was a um, a gentleman that was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer on one of the Facebook pages I belong to. He was diagnosed the same age I was, also had two girls, and didn't make it. And I just look at that and go, man, that could have been me. And so I think that's the part of the gift right. of cancer, which sounds really morbid and really obtuse. Um, but the gift of cancer is that you realize how lucky you are and how amazing it is to just be alive and to be able to breathe and to move and to not be in pain. Um, it's really, really a surreal experience. Um, but again, regarding the survivor's guilt, it's, it's really um, more powerful than I ever imagined it would be. It's not something that um, I, I really anticipated. Well, Jim, this has all been really helpful for me. I took about three pages of notes here. Oh, awesome. And <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. As we, unless Craig has anything else, as we move out of here, here's what I'd like to do. I always like to give people action steps. So sure. I've got these in two categories. Maybe first, if you can address somebody who, 
maybe has just been diagnosed or who is walking through cancer cancer right now, what are some action steps, some things maybe that you would recommend, some things that you think would be helpful for them? Yeah, I think that um, if you're newly diagnosed, um, you need to get a good team together, meaning a good medical team, people that you trust. I've heard way too many people that have had doctors that they just didn't believe in. And you have to believe in your doctors because they're the ones that are going to save your life. And you have to trust them um, unequivocally. And if you don't, that's okay. Go find someone you can trust. Get a second, third, fourth opinion if you don't feel right about something that you're being told. Um, And then the other part of your team is going to be your support system, your family, your friends. Uh, It's really important that everybody gets on the same page. Um, Again, I have people that I've spoken with that their families are not supportive. Um, They don't feel that they're as sick as they are, or they feel that um, they're not able to get the support from their family that they deserve, that they need. So go find it from somebody, Um, a family, a friend, a a group, a support group that you can join. I have not really joined a physical support group. Um, I didn't feel the need for it, but um, certainly that online presence and people that you can just vent to because they've experienced the same thing you have and they've gone through it and they can give you tips and um, things, uh, advice on how to make this journey a little bit easier. Are there any groups online that you would recommend to people? You know, it's real specific um, based on cancer. Um, there are two groups that I belong to um, that are specific to colon cancer. One is called um, Colon Cancer Warriors and, oh gosh, I can't remember the name now. I'm on it almost every day. Colon Cancer uh, <sighs> Warriors. If you search that, you'll find them. And then there's another one called Blue Hope Nation. Um, the colon cancer ribbon is blue. So um, Blue Hope Nation kind of refers to uh, those folks that have been diagnosed. And those are two amazing, amazing support groups uh, that you have people that are 20, 30-year veterans of uh, of surviving cancer. You have people that are brand new being diagnosed. You also have caregivers on there as well. We didn't really talk about caregivers too much, but they go through this as well, and they have absolutely no control over it. they, they have, I have friends that have been caregivers of their parents, um, like you, David, and it's a totally different experience for them because the person going through it can mentally fight and mentally and physically fight, but the caregiver, they can't do anything. All they can do is support their loved one and see them go through it. Um, so it's something that didn't occur to me until a few years after my diagnosis and like thinking about, all the people that supported me and and the trauma that they had to go through just to watch another loved one go through that. But um, I think that uh, to get back to your question about support groups, um, uh, depending on your, your diagnosis and the kind of cancer you have, I would search out a group that's specific to that kind of cancer because those folks are going to know it better than anybody. Gotcha. Now the second group I'd like you to speak to are those who know somebody who has been diagnosed with cancer or even, you know, any other illness, how can they respond or help? And you mentioned some good things previously. What should they do? What should they uh, not do? And maybe, you know, give us three or four or five of the most important things that yeah, folks yeah. can take out of here and, uh, you know, go back and, and better respond to those who uh, they know. Who yeah. So whether cancer it's cancer or, or some other kind of illness, chronic illness that somebody has, I think it's really important to not lose sight of who the person is, Um, their likes, their dislikes, um, what makes them tick, what makes them the person that they are. Um, I think it's really easy uh, to fall into the trap of seeing them as a victim, kind of like your mom didn't want to be seen as a victim or didn't want to be seen as the person with cancer. Nobody wants to be seen like that. Everybody wants to be seen as the human being that they are. Um, at the same time, I think it's important to balance that with um, the, the fact and and being real with that person. Like, you do have cancer. You do have to acknowledge that as well and make sure that they know that you're not ignoring that part of their life as well and that you're going through, that they are going through this struggle and that you're going to be there to help them through it. Um, so I'd say that those are two steps. 
Um, a third step, like I said, is supporting the caregivers as well in the family of that individual. Um, there's a quote that I, I know a lot of quotes now <laughs> after all this stuff, <laughs> Craig will probably test. I put a lot of quotes <laughs> in Facebook. Um, but w- one of them yeah. is, um, when someone's diagnosed with cancer, the whole family's diagnosed with cancer. Um, and that's really true in that, Th- that family, especially if it's like a, um, a spouse and children, they are seeing um, cancer treatment and cancer diagnosis on a very intimate level uh, in a bad way. Um, they're seeing this person that may be very strong um, and now is very weak and isn't able to care for themselves, um, is sick, um, can't can't do the things like I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't do the things I wanted to do with my kids or take care of my, even cut the grass. Um, so I think it's really important to support the family any way that you feel is appropriate for that family. And again, asking them, what can I do is not always the best question. It's more of, I would like to do this. Is this okay? Whatever that activity or action is. Mm -hmm. And I liked your question. How are you feeling today? I I've got a friend right now who's uh, walking through cancer and Mm. you know, that's, I think that's helpful. I think that shows that, that you care, right? Yeah. I I think it's a really important question. I have a friend um, who's also been, she's been battling, gosh, she's had cancer two or three times now and she's been going through it. She has stage four lung cancer and she's, she's been fighting it for over a year now and she's doing great. Um, most of the time, but I always ask her that question. How are you doing today? And I think it's just a much more personal question rather than asking, how are you? Um, many times we, we as lo- uh, loved ones or friends don't know what to say and that's okay. And you can say it's okay. Or you can say to the person, I don't know what to say. They'll understand. Sometimes you just need to sit with that person. I had people that came to visit me in the hospital and um, they would try to make small talk. And I would say, just stop talking and just sit down and let's just <laughs> hang out together for a few minutes because I'm not, I'm not going to make small talk right now as I'm going through this. <laughs> so right. um, I, I think it's important for, for you to be on, just, just be honest and real um, with the person that's been diagnosed because they are, this is the most real moment of their life. I mean, everything, you you reevaluate your life in a way that you can't imagine when you're faced with some kind of an illness like this or some kind of a a, a life choice. I mean, um, it, it's really a, like I said, it's a gift and a beautiful thing, but it's a very terrifying thing at the same time, knowing that you're not, you may not live to be 80 or 90, you may only live to be 38 or 39. Um, so I think just being real with them and asking them that question, how are you feeling today? is a much more personable and will probably generate more conversation and be more helpful to that person than asking, how are you? Nice. That's been incredible advice. That's a good one. Well, Jim, uh, we've asked a bunch of questions. Is there anything that you would like to say that we didn't cover in a question? You know, the only other thing that I wanted to say was um, to really encourage people that um, aren't diagnosed with cancer to get their screenings when they're supposed to get them. Generally colonoscopy is at Mm. 50 years old um, because most people that are diagnosed with this disease um, are diagnosed after the age of 50. But there's a huge increase right now of younger people um, being diagnosed with colon and rectal cancer. Um, But if you, if people feel that um, something's not right with their body um, they, they have a pain, they have an, uh, a sickness or they, they, they just feel something's wrong. Trust your body, go to the doctor, get checked out because there's too many people that let too many things go too long. And then by the time they're diagnosed, they're in really bad shape. Um, so just listen to your body and, and get it checked out. David, do you have anything else? No, Jim, this has been incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for being real with us. I, I think that you helped a lot of people today. I hope so. And man, I just thank you guys for this show um, and for me, the opportunity to come talk. And like I told you guys earlier, it's like um, 
I'm I'm like getting to hang out with my celebrity <laughs> friends here. Oh, it's man. a lot of fun. We're just regular dudes, man. That makes Get me out. feel <laughs> uh, that makes me feel silly. You're just a good dude, Jim. Just uh, we really appreciate you. We really appreciate you being here. Yeah, and you guys are. This podcast is great. You guys um, really educate a lot of people about a lot of really important things, and I'm glad that this is something that hopefully was able to educate some other folks as well. well it's been great, Jim. I'm gonna, if there's anything else, well, I'm going to sign us off yeah, here. Yeah, thank you. Right on. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jim. Bye. All right, Craig, you want to close us up? Yeah, guys and gals, please remember to subscribe to the podcast now. It's free. That's cool. It's free, super free. So when that ensures that you don't miss any episode that's coming about, and we really appreciate that. And that way you can share the podcast. This is a fantastic podcast to share with family and friends. You know that are dealing with cancer or have a family member that's dealing with cancer. Uh, that is fantastic. We Again, thank Jim for being here, and that's why we do the podcast for us, to help people as best we can. If you want to, then go over to the podcast and give us a five-star rating, particularly over on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. Support our sponsors, as David has told us at the beginning of the show. Check out the extra content and links in the description to get all the links we've mentioned in the show today on gear, training, and cool other stuff you might find on YouTube and social media. Particularly, we'll find links to those groups that Jim mentioned, and we'll make sure that we have links for them in the description below. So that's it, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show Podcast. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.